to do what I've gotten to do a lot of times, you have to start really young. You have to be a kid. You have to come from a lot of money. I have strapped into race cars with some of the best drivers in the world. I have no credentials to be there. The only reason I'm there is because a lot of people believed in me. Welcome to Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. And on this show, I talk to all types of professionals across all different areas about what's allowed them to be successful in their industry so far. And today I have Gino Manley on to talk about retail automotive and being a race car driver. Gino, thank you so much for joining me. Today. No worries, man. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Happy to have you. I think this is going to be a very interesting and unique conversation. It's, uh, it's an industry I haven't really covered before, so I'm excited to get into it. Cool. No, yeah. Um, retail automotive has been kind of my background. So I'm 29 years old. So it was my first job. Um, I'm fortunate that I've been with the same company uh, for that entire time, but started off at a real low level, um, actually taking photos of cars and then uh, moved my way up into sales. And now I'm in a, a management position in, in the company I'm with. So uh, no, I think it's a fantastic career path. Um, a lot of people look at, you know, retail automotive and let, let's call it what it is, car sales, um, as a, you know, as a short-term job a lot of times, but it's probably one of the most fulfilling careers that um, I can imagine. Um, as a car guy, um, I get to make a living, you know, playing with cars all day and, you know, being involved in the business. Um, I don't think people realize uh, how big of an industry retail automotive is and, and how powerful it is even in a local community. So so did you see it as a long-term thing immediately when you got in or did it be kind of kind of become a long-term thing? No. So my father was involved in the business um, and it was a summer job. So when I was 18 years old, um, I was trying to, I just uh, finished up my bachelor's degree in criminal justice, uh, did it early and I was thinking I was going to go the law route. So took a little bit of time off and took a summer job taking photos of these cars at the dealership. Um, had a good time. Again, you know, 18-year-old kid. And uh, one day they were down a salesman. And they said, hey, would you mind filling in? I was like, yeah, no big deal. I can, I can figure this out. So um, ended up having a lot of success. And they asked me to come on full time. And in between this, I'm, I'm prepping for law school, taking LSATs and trying to pick out where I'm going to go and, you know, how I'm going to pay for this. And uh, one day, uh, uh, a young uh, lawyer came in to buy a car from me, and um, I'm doing you know the application with him, picked out a car, and I see how much he made. Um, and again, he was a, a younger attorney, you know, again a couple years out of school, and it kind of was alarming to me because at the time I was making uh, more than he was considerably in the retail automotive industry, and I'm thinking, well, you know, again, I'm 19 years old at this point, I can take three years and go do this, and I looked at the amount it's going to cost me to go to school. And then, you know, the income I'm going to lose by doing this. So um, I was like, man, I'm having a really good time. So, you know, at that point, I said, well, let me just put my head down and, and see what I can make out of this. And, uh, you know, uh, going on 11 years now, I, I don't regret it. Um, again, it's uh, the lessons I learned in this industry are awesome and the people I met. Um, and there's a lot of people that have made very, very successful careers. Um, and to give you an idea, I was a, a, you know, a young salesman and, and even now in a management position that, you know, we've got 19, 20, 20 year old kids in the six figures very readily. And this is an industry that you don't have to have a college education. Um, if you like cars, it's, it's twice as good. Um, and if you can find the right home to, to do this in, it's, it's a very lucrative career. So so it just kind of, you took to it naturally pretty much right away once you tried the sales. Do you think you kind of just had a knack for the sales or what do you think that was? Yeah, you know, I, I think people overthink um, sales. Again, it's a people industry. Um, you know, again, if you can know the product you're selling, again, I'm, as a car guy, I already knew all the cars. Um, and you can kind of harness that and kind of learn the art of selling, which, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of that last generation where it's kind of a, a dying art. But um, if you can learn how to sell... 
um, you can have immense success in this industry, um, you know, just by being personal knowing what you're selling and, and really saying, Hey, how can I help my customer? If you can do that, you're going to have immense success. So do you think that's kind of just the, the principles of sales across any industry is just really knowing how to meet the customer where they're at and get them to where they need to be? You, you know, I, I have this conversation a lot because, um, I hire a bunch of young salesmen and saleswomen these days that, you know, again, I try to get their mind right. Unfortunately, the way things are now, we live kind of like an Apple store. You come in, you pick what you want, you leave with it. You go on to Amazon, you pick what you want, you buy with it. So, you know, cars are one of those last things where people still want to go touch them, drive them, feel them. Uh, they want to go to a dealer, you know. So, yes and no, it's the way we are now, we're kind of an order taker society, just what it is, except in this industry, maybe this, maybe real estate. Um, but I try to convey people, no matter what, you're always selling. You might not realize it, but you're selling. So if you can figure out how to sell, um, you can do pretty much any career you want. So, um, yeah, customer service and being personable is, is the foundation of it, but kind of knowing the art and actually asking, hey, what can I do during your business? That's a lot of people have a hard time with that these days. So, What are a couple of pivotal moments for you and your sales journey in particular that come to mind of things that maybe preconceived notions you had that kind of got changed by learning new things yeah. or just major changes that you had along the way? Well, you know, I think that, you know, having having some empathy for a customer is the biggest thing. You know, again, it's you got to think if you're on the other side of the table and, you know, again, a lot of salesmen in any, any industry, they're thinking, how can I do this? How can I do this? Sell? Well, you got to flip the table and say, well, what are they thinking? Um, and that's why a lot of customers are standoffish when they come in and that can range from door to door sales uh, to selling, you know, a million dollar house, a fifty thousand dollar car, um, so kind of putting yourselves in their shoes, so to speak, is very critical because everybody's situation is different. You could have, you know, a young kid purchasing his first automobile. Uh, you could have a family that's expanding. So you need to understand kind of where they're coming from and when you can relate to them. And once I realize that, that's very, very important to see where they're coming from. Um, you know, again, that that's it makes everything easier not only for yourself but for your customers. So. Absolutely. So kind of talking about your background again a little bit more. So you get into this, you're kind of progressing along the way. It sounds like pretty quickly. Yeah. How did the switch from just sales to management look for you? Was that difficult? So, you know, my philosophy on this was I would never, ever ask to be promoted. Um, so this this is going on five years. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with my sales career. Um, you know, I have a have a good customer base. I'm kind of working my own hours because in this industry you can kind of almost do that if you if you have have enough success. Uh, and when my group asked me to do it, um, they were like, "Hey, you know, again, you have great success in this. Do you want to try this next frontier?" So um, the fact that it was offered to me was very important. I didn't want to be that guy. Hey, promote me, promote me, promote me, um, because I had seen a lot of people do that, and not just in my business, but in any industry. And then when you when you want the title. You know, again, if you haven't earned it yet, you're going to have serious problems. So when they asked me to do it, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. Um, and yeah, and it's a, it's a big transition managing people. Um, you know, again, we're in a commission-based business. And when you have a month where it's not, I'm worried about myself making an income, you're worried about, you know, a group of guys uh, and girls trying to make an income to feed their families, then the responsibility changes a little bit and you kind of realize that. So what are the biggest differences that you've observed from kind of traditional management where it's not commission-based people for, you know, what you're doing where it actually is people that are relying on that commission. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of differences in kind of the expectations that you have to manage and it's a lot more intense at times. What are the biggest 
skill sets that you need to be able to do that? So, you know, I, I think that that is one of the biggest tragedies, I think, of of modern day management is, you know, again, a lot of guys, they're going to be, you know, managing hourly employees. You come in, you punch the clock, you do your work. There's really no quantifiable way to see how, how well they're doing versus in, in sales and commission-based sales. It, you know, again, you're basically a coach. You have to keep these guys motivated um, the entire time. You know, again, you got to let them realize their income is based on their attitude, how much work they put into and, and, and how they study um, what they're selling. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I think it's, um, I, like I said, I think it's really sad that a lot of these guys these days are going to be managing people uh, won't have the ability to, to let them realize, hey, if you work a little harder and, and, you know, work a little smarter, you can probably make a lot more income. So that's a blessing, I feel like. Um, but again, you have to be a cheerleader constantly. Um, you have to, because in our business, it is very cyclical. It is very, um, you know, based on the economy. We just had a rate, you know, change. We can feel it immediately. So having to get with the guys and motivate them and, and rally them, especially when they're down, you know, whenever, when you have a, a group of salespeople and they're all on, the, on their high, it's easy. You got momentum, the most deadly thing in the world, and it rolls. But when you have that little lull, um, you don't want to let that fester. So you got to be able to get in their head and say, hey, you know, let's pick it up. Here's how we can do it. How can I help you? So How do you maintain that energy level personally? Um, so myself, you know, again, I don't know. I've, I've always been, this sounds really, really bad, but um, obviously everyone likes to make money. I'm, I, I love to make money. But it's almost just the pride that I don't want to have a bad month. Um, that really bothers me, you know, again, and I can't show it to the guys like, man, you know, we had a horrible month, but you know, again, you gotta be like, Hey, here's what we can do better. And here's how we can fix it. So, um, yeah, I just think that the pride of not wanting to, um, when I look at a financial statement and it was a bad month, uh, you know, again, I lose sleep and not over it. Not because I mean, yeah, a component was like, Oh, it's going to be less of a check this month. But I kind of had that comfort level where it's like, that's just a pride thing. Like, that's really going to bother me. So we got to figure out how we can fix it. So Yeah, absolutely. So kind of switching gears for a second, the one big thing we haven't really talked about so far is how you got involved in racing. I definitely yeah. want to cover that. So, so how did you? How did that even first come on your radar? So you know, it's uh, when when I was asked to come on here, I was like, okay, well, do you want to talk to Gino, you know, the career guy or Gino, the race car driver? So um, I said I wanted to meet both. Yeah, it's, it's a little tough. So I... My, I, I, most people tell you I live two very distinct lives and I keep them very, very separate to the best I can. So, um, you know, again, 25 days out of the month, I'm in the store, you know, working career stuff, but you know, one week or two weekends out of the month, I have to turn it off and go play race car driver. Um, when I was just starting off in the business, kind of going back to that 1819, you know, I started to actually make some real money. Um, I bought a little sports car, a little Volkswagen, and um, started doing a bunch of amateur racing events, and it just really grew over the next decade to the point where uh, just recently, probably in the last three or four years, um, I kind of got to play with this professionally, um, racing in IMSA and some, some real, you know, real big series. I just raced in Europe and, and RCN in Germany. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's not that hard of a jump because I've always loved cars. So if you love cars, the jump to racing, you know, isn't that, isn't that tough. Um, always been a racing fan. So when I started doing this, you know, as an amateur hobby, it was really just to go have fun during the weekend. Um, and more or less, probably because of the skills I had built from my career, just meeting people and networking um, down down the line, you know, fast forwarding a little bit. Um, I started to meet people in different areas of the country. And then, um, again, kind of going back to always selling, you know, again, inadvertently, I probably was always selling myself to, hey, you know, let me know how I can help you, you know, again, uh, 
any 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 knowledge I can offer you to to you know to help you. And so I kind of just sold myself into meeting a lot of people and networking correctly. And then uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, I just opportunity came to to do some pro stuff. And um, yeah, just it's it's become its second career basically. So you know, next year we'll we'll go probably uh, back to Germany and do some racing. I'll race around the country. And again, it's uh, it's been a wild journey on that side. So really, just starting with amateur stuff. I want to kind of zoom back out a second and kind of get into that a little bit first amateur race what does that look like is that just like is that here in town no so really it was a group of friends i had met and 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 uh we used to do this little thing called autocrossing we would go drive between the cones in a parking lot i felt like it was top of the world but you know we really weren't doing anything um and i met a group of young guys we bought a small volkswagen together old just a junker volkswagen and went entered a, a real amateur endurance series went to virginia and did so that was like my first ever race and from there, I started doing a bunch of these little, you know, amateur events. And then as my career progressed, I mean, this is kind of how this goes. Um, I was able to afford to do more, you know, advanced stuff and start racing more cars. And, um, you know, again, racing is a very expensive hobby. I mean, there's just no way around it. So as my success in my career raised up, then what I was able to do was able to raise up more with that. And um, able to upgrade your car, up upgrade cars, like you know, go race with, you know, go to, you know, more exotic racetracks and, and go around the country. Um, and then it got to the point though, where that kind of became its own thing, you know? So I kind of ended up having to treat that like a second career where, you know, again, I'm working with people, working with sponsors, uh, working with different groups of people, trying to raise money to go do stuff that I couldn't afford to do alone. Um, so again, going back to the sales thing, I, I don't think I would have the success in racing, uh, to be able to have these opportunities to even fund a lot of these opportunities if it wasn't for my ability to kind of convince people to help me out. So so you kind of fund it yourself to start with, yeah. and then it starts to become such a thing that it is kind of building as its own thing. So, yeah, I always tell people with anything, anything racing, it's an immense amount of money. Uh, my dream was always to not have to pay for racing. So I'm kind of at that point now. Um, will it ever become, you know, a, a paying career for me? Maybe, maybe not. It's not really a big deal for me. But uh, the fact that I'm at the point now where a lot of the racing I get to do is picked up by sponsors or just other things I'm doing is, you know, is very, very. It's always neat to me. But um, yeah, you know, again, finally got to race professional at Daytona a couple of years ago. Uh, this year, race the the IMSA Bishop Pilot Challenge at Daytona. So uh, my dream was always to race professionally here at home. Um, and then, you know, on the list was to race professionally in, in you know, uh, some other series. So we're going to work on that. And then finally got to race in Germany this year. So there's a huge bucket list of personal things I'm trying to do um, at the same time, balance my other career and not take from one or the other. So so on this kind of subject of your career funding, your passion, what was the point that you how did you get to the point where you realized that it needed to be kind of its self-sufficient thing? What were some of the. Signs yeah, that you well, you know, it, it's funny. Um, and it's kind of a longer story, but, you know, again, I, I kind of built this following um, among uh, in the motorsport community. So um, I don't want to say I mean, it sounds, you know, kind of cocky, but when you have fans and things like that, and it starts to kind of take off its own life. And uh, a good friend of mine who uh, does a bunch of track uh, stuff in Atlanta, runs an organization there, was like, hey, you know, this is this is starting to become its own thing here. It's starting to become its own brand. Um, which sounded really dumb at the time. I was like, this is, you're being ridiculous. But then I started to, you, to it just felt like a hobby. Like yeah. The hobby and, always been. and then I started to see signs of it where, you know, again, the social media following started to get a little higher and then people started to recognize you. 
Um, and so, you know, again, I had a small soapbox at that point. So, it's, you know, again, at that point, it's, you know, where people started to realize who you were, it's like, well, maybe we can monetize this a little bit and have them pay for some of the racing. Of um, and so it's really important to me now that I bring more people into the hobby. Um, so that's kind of my thing is to get more people in the racing these days and obviously pursue my own dreams, you know, in this uh, in this realm. But um, it's gotten to the point where if you'd asked me five years ago, would I ever had these opportunities, I'd laugh, you know, of course not. Um, but you know, again, it's, it's, um, really because of the people I met, they made a lot of this possible. I don't know what they saw in me or if they, you know, uh, they just wanted to help me out, but we had, uh, you know, again, my first ever race we had, it was basically crowdfunded, um, to get it, to get wow. it done, you know? And so, um, it's, uh, when you have to spend your own money to do it, you know, again, it scares me to think, uh, how much I spent It's probably the worst financial mistake I ever made was, you know, funding racing. Um, but when I look back on it, um, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time because uh, I'm about to turn 30 and I'm like, well, you know, in, in my 20 to 30 range did I accomplish a lot I wanted to do. And I can honestly say it was more than I ever thought was possible. So I have that, um, you know, in my back pocket and, you know, it just, I think the more and more accomplishments you have like that, no matter how you did them, um, you know, it just really helps you feel more down the road. So I want to zoom in on a couple of things there, the crowdfunding. I think yeah. there's an interesting point in there for like for any hobby that someone has that's on the side of their career that could hopefully become a full-time thing or at yeah. least something that's self-sufficient on its own. What are the kinds of things that you need to be doing to try to get to that point? So it's, it's so critical um, in any career, whether it's, you know, my, my main job, which is retail, um, or motorsport, I don't think people realize how important a network is. Um, and if, you know, again, if I could go back in time, I would have really started working this a lot sooner because what you don't realize is, yeah, you got friends and contacts. Yeah. You know, you talking, but that's actually kind of the beginning of your network and you don't really realize who people know and know, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, again, one of my first ever pro race, um, you know, again, I'll give you the number. We needed to raise $25,000. Um, and we we're able to do most of that um, because um, I had a lot of friends that were involved in racing, owned small businesses. Um, they, you know, again, people I had met just in the amateur stuff. At that point, they wanted to help me. They're like, hey, if you had this opportunity, we want to help you. So that was 25000 to enter the race, you said? To do one race, yeah. Wow, so, yeah. you know, so I've, I've done a bunch of these since then. And mm -hmm. so, again, it's an immensely expensive. That was the um, first big one. First though. big one was to get this off the ground. Um, and you know, again, it, it, I, it would not have been possible if I had not had known a lot of these people that I can go, I don't want to say shake them down, but really the difference is if, you know, again, if you have a good network, um, and people don't realize they want to help you, you know, again, so it was like, Hey, this, we know this guy, he's a good dude. Um, you know, again, he's one of us, he's kind of just from the grassroots, let's help him. And people want to do that. They want to be a part of that. Um, and so that really helped, you know, get, get, I don't want to say my racing career, but a lot of my, my pro racing stuff off the ground um, and to the point now where, again, it's kind of to the point where if I want to do something with enough time, I can probably raise it to do it. So Yeah. What are some tactics that you think have served you well in particular that's allowed you to kind of distinguish yourself as and what sounds like kind of an expert in networking? So, yeah, a lot of it's by mistake. Um, you know, again, it's, you know, I know a lot of guys in any industry they go in with an ulterior motive. So, you know, again, it's, for instance, this podcast, you know, Andy asked me to come on here. Well, some people, well, I want to be on your podcast because I want to, you know, have the 30 second clips that I can reshare. So if you go in there with the mindset of, hey, you know, again, I don't really want anything from you. How can I help you? 
it is way more impactful. Um, and so a lot of the, you know, the connections I have have become very good friends. Um, and so when the time comes, I can say, hey, I got this going on. Let me know if you want to be a part of it versus, hey, you know, I need 10 grand from you right now, you know. So, um, you know, again, illegitimate, you know, connection just with an ulterior motive just never really serves anybody. Um, and I think going it's, with genuine intention. Yeah, going with genuine intentions. And anyone I've ever taken, a, you know, a dollar from sponsorship wise or whether it's a brand deal or a product deal, they genuinely want to do it to help me. And that, you know, again, when 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 that's the, the goal, it's way more valuable, I feel like, in the long run. So absolutely. So what do these brand deals and sponsorships usually look like as far as the business side of it? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. So one of um, a great supporter of mine's uh, Hawk Performance, which is a, a brake company in, in the motorsport field. Um, every car I've raced this year, they have supplied the brakes for, which to give you an idea, like on one of these cars, I mean, the pads are like 700 bucks. And they're just sending me boxes and boxes of pads. Now, wow. I'm very, very thankful for it. But the team I'm racing with now, you know, the the monetization of that is, hey, we don't have to buy brakes all year. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, huge, you know, help. And, uh, you know, again, we've set up a bunch of deals. You know, one of them's uh, with Liquid Molly. It's a, it's a brand deal where they've covered every single fluid we've needed in the team I'm racing with this year. So, I mean, could you put a dollar amount? Sure, it's going to be high. Um, but I think it's more or less just being associated with them is worth, you know, X amount of dollars and then be there just doing really with the, you know, Hey, because he's supporting our brand, we're going to support him. So I think when you can get to that point, it's, it's huge. Now, again, yes, you can ask people, you know, for, I need a check for X amount, but you know, again, you need to be sure that's a very useful event. You're going to get actual dollars from, because like most companies, they just want to see their products being used. So. Okay. So a lot of times it's products that relate to the actual racing. Yep, exactly. So, and is it ever businesses that are just looking to promote themselves? Um, yeah, you know, so, um, when we did, I did a race last year, uh, Patila Mall over at Atlanta that had a, we were, we kind of joke we were the small business car, um, because me and my teammate at the time had hit up a bunch of the small businesses we knew in the Atlanta area. Um, and they came on board with an immense amount of money to make this race happen. Um, but there and again, I don't really think they cared uh, about having the business promoted. They just kind of wanted to help us out more. Just kind of wanted to be yeah, part so, of it. Yeah, so yeah, they want a sticker on the car, sure. So we had like a bazillion stickers on this car. It was it was kind of funny, actually. Um, but, you know, again, if it was important to them, I'd call them and be like, hey, Brody, where do you want the sticker? Oh, I don't care. Mm -hmm. So at that point, they didn't really care. They just wanted to be a part of it. So um, you know, again, when people, again, going back to that, when you have people that really buy into what you're trying to do. And so for me, you know, it's just your average guy who's trying to, you know, do something really, really tough, which is race professionally. Um, they want to help out, you know, and, you know, again, in racing, it's one of those hobbies where, um, to do what I've gotten to do a lot of times, you have to start really young. You have to be a kid. You have to come from a lot of money. Um, you have to be in a go-kart at six years old, let's say. And kind of work it. So for me to kind of just pick this up as a hobby in my late teens to get to do it now, um, it's it's a little wild, but it's also opened the, that door where a guy's like, well, if he can do it, in theory, if I could probably do the same thing, and they're absolutely right. Um, but you know, again, it just it takes a lot of work to do it. Um, and I kind of you know I, I hate the term you know trust the process because it's so overhyped. But I mean, it's more or less is kind of true. You know, I mean, if you put the work in, you're gonna get what you get out of it. Well, there's networking. Um, I mean, I've gone to a bunch of events that I really didn't want to go to, but in my mind, it's like, well, I need to go out there and meet some people and just, you know, and see what happens. So 
Here's an interesting question about networking events. I feel like a lot of people will go to networking events just to go, just to make a presence mm -hmm. and not get a lot out of them. What is the goal when you go to one? Do you have like a particular kind of threshold of like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to meet this many people or I'm just going to talk to this many people? So, no, I, I don't, I, I never go into that with that kind of, I'm going to go meet people, but I think that the most important thing, um, whether it's motorsport or even just a regular career, is you got to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I know that that sounds a little cheesy, but, you know, again, if you've got to be around the people. If you're just at home not doing anything, so I'm a big believer, like, I can't remember the last weekend I spent at home. Like, I just, I hate it. I'd, I'd rather not just, you know, I'd rather go do something. So it's whether it's going to an event, a race, a car show, um, you just got to be seen and be around these people because you never know who you're going to meet or, you know, that one connection. So I don't really have a goal. Like, I need to shake 10 hands or anything like that. Um, but it's more about, hey, you know, again, again, being a car guy, hey, tell me a little about your car. I'm looking at the car. I can't tell you how many, you know, weird opportunities that come about for me just because I was at a certain event somebody saw me or they let me drive their car you know again there's a lot of opportunities that come out of that um just because you have to be where the people are if you're not there you, you know again you're never gonna have a chance to meet them or even talk to them so it's about being there and being seen yeah I mean really I mean again it's it's it, it truly is about being you know it uh, I've always lived by the saying you know it's not who you know it's who knows you and that is like 10,000 percent true so absolutely so on that same kind of note, just uh, growing the following and the brand, I guess, I did want to talk a little bit about the social media stuff. Yeah. You talked a little bit briefly about how that was kind of growing on the side the whole time. Yeah. Is that something that you were kind of intentional about or did that feel no, like a byproduct? To, to be honest with you, so I didn't really realize like just, you know, and I'd post stuff on Instagram. And so, again, talking about treating this as a job. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm like, I'm way more in tune with it now, you know, than I was before. So it's just making sure you post pretty, you know, there post pretty regularly, you know, so I'm out. I think it's like 15,000 followers on Instagram, but it's, it's not like, you know, I'm not like Instagram famous or anything like that, but that's 15,000 people that are in this hobby in this industry that have followed me. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, when you think about that and, you know, you know, when I go to a, a race or an event and somebody notices you and they say, Hey, I follow you on there it's a little weird at first, you know, um, but then you kind of realize how important that, that network is and people are actually watching you. So um, I'll never forget, I was racing uh, Petit Le Mans one year and a kid came up to me and says, hey, you know, I followed you on Instagram when you were not, you know, doing this, when you were just, you know, having having a good time with the amateur stuff and to see you here is, you know, pretty inspirational. So that was pretty alarming, you know, because it's like, man, I don't want to have that responsibility. Um, but when you realize how many people are actually following in the power of that, um, you know, you, that you, you got to work it, you know. And because I have a decent following now in, in our community, um, again, going back to the sponsorship stuff, you know, that's that's how a company says, hey, we want to give you product or we want to help you racing because you do have a little bit of a pool in this community. So um, I, I really don't like it. I mean, I'm, I, it makes me uncomfortable, the, the personal branding thing. Um, but over the past couple of years, I really had to come to grips with it and say, hey, this is a way for me to help more people get into this hobby. So I've kind of twisted it to that point. So that's kind of what I'm all about now is getting, you know, somebody who wants to get on a racetrack. How can I help them do that? So I guess it gives you a little bit of like a, a way to just show brands the following that you have and yeah, I mean, show that there will be eyes on their product. I think so. Yeah. You know, and again, so it's um, yeah, that the social media thing, I, I, I really it still makes me uncomfortable this day. Um, but it's something you have to do. And, and, and arguably, it's how you stay connected with people that could help you. And, and in, a, in a small way, it's how can I give back and help some people that are following me. So 
And with the networking, obviously networking through social media loses a little bit of the personability mm -hmm. and there's that to think about, but it also does allow you to do the networking in different ways, different unique ways across kind of a massive scale. So that's definitely got to be a big help. Yeah. You know, I, I think though, when people think about networking, it's, um, you know, again, particularly on social media, it's, they want to have, you know, 100,000 followers. They want to have, you know, X, you know, X amount of likes. It's really, I don't care about that. I'm just trying to connect with that, like, you know, really, really small percentage of people that are involved in racing and even smaller bite of that. I want people that are involved in like really grassroots, just getting into racing because that was me. And so I can help somebody that's just getting into the hobby because I've kind of spent all the money. I've done all that. I've done all the heartbreak, then all the you know mistakes and, and the triumphs to get to a point where I can kind of do this professionally now. So I want to talk to them. I don't want to talk to somebody that's been in this industry 10, 15 years, somebody that's already doing it professionally. I, I'm of no use to them, and they're probably of no use to me, to be honest with you. So I'm trying to get into that really small uh, segment of, you know, of motorsport people with, with whatever social media I do. So To kind of switch gears, I kind of just wanted to talk about, like, where your favorite places to race have been. I mean, it sounds like you've been to a lot of cool places that afford yeah. you the ability to travel a lot, maybe more than you needed to be sometimes. So, yeah, you know, it's um, I've been very fortunate because racing is all over the country. So um, I've been entirely all over the country. Um, it was a big dream of mine uh, to race in Europe. So I ended up going to uh, Germany to race the Nürburgring. Uh, it was supposed to be one time and it ended up being three times this year. Um, but, you know, it's really my lifelong dream that I never thought was possible would be to race at Daytona because it's my home track. I grew up, I went to a bunch of races there. So um, anytime I get to race at Daytona, that's always pretty special just because it's, it's uh, if you're a racing guy, it's like hallowed ground. Um, really, really enjoy racing, obviously, in, in the Nürburgring, um, kind of made some vacations out of it. Um, but it, it is tough because, um, like, I've been to California four or five times and it's get in, get out. And so a lot of this racing isn't, you know, again, there's no time for sightseeing. So that makes it a little tough. Um, but, you know, I've been up to New York to Watkins Glen, which is, a, you know, a great track. So, um, yeah, racing is taking me all over the country. Um, it's going to take me. I'm working on some stuff to go even to a couple more European countries next year to do racing. But when you go there, it's with the mindset you land, get to the track, do what you got to do, get back in the plane, get back home. So um, when I went to Germany a couple times this year, it was literally close the store, go down to Orlando, jump on a flight overnight, race Saturday, fly back Sunday, uh, be back at, you know, work Monday at nine o'clock. And, you know, again, kind of talk about just balancing the two lives. It's always a huge compliment to me when somebody at work says, how are you here? Weren't you just, you know, out of the country, just in California, just in Germany? So that means like, hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm burning the candle at both ends while making it work, you know, so. So one topic we had talked about off air that we definitely wanted to get into yeah. is that work-life balance. I think this is a good segue to get into that. It sounds like it's been a thing that's a little bit of a struggle at certain times. How have you been able to find a good work-life balance? Because you had mentioned yeah. that it's something you've kind of gotten better at as you've gone along. Yeah, uh, you know, so it's, it's immense. My career um, is, you know, again, immensely important to me. Um, my racing, which is I'm very passionate about, and you know, and 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 more or less, I feel like they go hand in hand because obviously my career uh, helps fund my racing to a certain extent. Um, but you know, again, I kind of need both. I could, you know, the the lifestyle I want to live, I couldn't go try to do it via racing. So um, to be able, I'm very fortunate because again, I, the schedule I'm able to work, you know, again allows me to get to go do this, you know, every so every so often. 
but it's very tough because again, too, if I'm racing on a Sunday or doing an event on a Sunday, it means that, you know, again, I got to either fly overnight Saturday, which I do all the time or drive six, seven hours and then be back Monday. So, um, there are times where I don't know how I do it. I mean, again, I've, I've flown throughout the night multiple times just to land and go straight to work. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think though, when people are really passionate about something, you know, you'll find a way to make it work. Um, you know, again, people, you know, there's always, again, I'm very fortunate because I love my job, but you know, again, if you were, let's say I hated my job, I'd probably still find a way to make it work because, you know, again, it's funny, something I'm really, really passionate about. So I think people don't realize how much time they actually have. Um, and so I've really had to work on how to bend time. Um, people don't value time enough. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I have every single airport membership you can think of to get the security quicker. If I can get a rental car 30 minutes quicker, it really means something. If I can get an earlier flight, it's, it's worth the extra money. So, um, you know, again, I'm willing to pay the money to be able to get that chunk of time back so I can either get where I'm going quicker or not. So, um, that's one thing if I ever, you know, if looking back at my younger self, it's like, yeah, I need to value time more. And I mean, how many times do you want to go book a plane ticket? It's like, ah, man, that ticket's a hundred dollars more and I'll just get there three hours later. No big deal. Well, that's a big deal at, at a certain point. So, um, putting an actual dollar value on time and being able to justify spending X amount more, sometimes way more to be able to be where you need to be is very important to me. So. What are some other time-saving tips that come to mind? Just schedule-keeping, time-saving? You know, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that – so it's probably not very healthy, but, I mean, you need to learn how to sleep on a plane. I can't tell you how many rest stops I, I slept in the car overnight just to make it work. Um, you know, again, learning learning how to travel is very, very important. If you're going to do something that requires you to, to, to leave as much as I do – you need to learn how to travel. You know, most people take their one vacation a year and, you know, it's a train wreck. They're late to the airport, this and all that. You've got to really, really practice how you're going to pack, how you're going to do this um, to make it work. And especially if you're traveling internationally, you got to get that down to a science. So buy every membership you can, whether it's, you know, pre-check, clear, whatever it is, get get all of them. Um, but you need, you need to be rehearsed and being able to get in and get out very quickly. It, I was going to say, it's funny that you said the same words. I was going to say, it sounds like you have it down to a science. Yeah. What are some ways, what are some tips for just staying healthy? If you find yourself all of a sudden having to travel way more for your career, I haven't figured that out yet. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's, if you're traveling for your career, it's one thing I, again, too, I'm, I'm traveling because it's something I'm very passionate about. So I think deep down, you'll always find enough to, you'll find enough for you to, to, you know, fly throughout the night, drive throughout the night and make it work. So now if you're flying for work, you know, again, that's, which I have done, you know, it, it's way more tenuous and way more stressful to have to do it like that, you know? So again, I think people going back to, if you're doing something you're really passionate about, you know, again, it doesn't matter if you're flipping burgers and you're trying to pursue something. I always think people will find a little bit of extra to find that extra hour in the day. Uh, to get something done. So yeah, it, just hearing you talk about it and how you're how it's been this whole time, it sounds like you're so passionate about the racing yeah. that even if it was something that never paid for itself, you would have kept doing it. Does yeah, I would have found a way. Yeah, you know, again, in, in the in the racing world, in the motorsport world, and, and probably arguably maybe even any sport you're involved with. You know, again, and so like I was never really big into any stick and ball sports growing up, so getting to do this later in life is pretty cool. Um, you know, again, when you're, you want to be around extreme people. Um, and when I'm at a racetrack, you know, again, I'm with like-minded people, uh, generally very successful people because they're funding their ways to do this. And, you know, again, they'd rather spend their weekends going 150 miles an hour 
than on the golf course or fishing or, you know, not to make fun of those hobbies, but, you know, we'd rather be out there doing something, you know, pretty fun and, you know, slightly dangerous, very dangerous even. Are you a little um, bit of an adrenaline junkie? Um, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, you know, again, but the problem is what I've done now, there's so much, you know, again, like people want to go ride roller coasters, like, yeah, you know, it's not, not that big of a deal, you know? So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, half of the, the fun isn't actually being in the car. I enjoy being around the people. Um, I enjoy being in a paddock, you know, and, and kind of looking at the cars again, because I'm a car guy. So, um, but you know, again, I, I think it's, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I feel like because I found something I'm very passionate about. I see guys all the time. Um, so I'm 29 you know, I see guys in their late twenties that they still haven't figured out what they're supposed to do. Um, and so I found, you know, something that I, I really care about. Um, I've accomplished a lot of dreams doing it, you know? Um, but it, you know, again, doing that just goes to show you that how much you're capable of, if you can actually pull it off. Um, and so I'm looking forward to the thirties to see what I can do in the next decade. So I think it's so important finding that thing that you're so passionate about because it is going to allow you to get things out of yourself. You never knew you could. Sounds like that's been a common. Well, I mean, how many guys do we know? Um, and, and it's almost sad, but they're 50 years old. They've worked at the same job for 30 years. They take their one vacation a year. They have a couple kids, and that's all they got, you know? And, and I'm not knocking that. If that's your thing, but, you know, again, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, it's like, man, I've, I've traveled the world. I've raced some cars. I've raced professionally at Daytona. Um, and so, you know, again, part of the reason, you know, so people are like, man, you spent a lot of money to travel or you have spent a lot of money to do this. I always tell people, if you have an opportunity to do your, to, to accomplish your dream and it's, if it's every dime you have, spend it. Now that's going to go against every financial advisor in the world. Um, they're going to tell, oh, don't do that. Say this. But you know, again, I can tell you, I spent way too much money trying to accomplish dreams and actually have done them. And I would do it over again because I could be dead broke tomorrow, but at least I can look at and say, I actually did that. And I think that's what, to me, that's worth more than the money ever will be. You can always make money, um, particularly, and again, it, and I've been a little spoiled because I've had a very, you know, good career so far. Um, but I think that people, you know, again, you have that, a lot of high achievers and people that, you know, have goals and dreams, they're so conservative with the risk they take. And, you know, well, when I'm 40, I'm going to do it. Well, you know, when you're 40, we'll, we'll see where we're at, you know, but um, I think people don't really push hard enough and take enough risks when it comes to actually accomplishing a dream. They want to buy a house. They want to do this. And that's that's great. Um, but, you know, again, when you're when you're at the other end of it, you know, again, if you haven't accomplished anything you want to do, then, you know, that's going to be a struggle. So many great points in there. I think one that came to mind is just the best investment, I, I, could, I totally agree with everything you were saying. I think the best investment you can make in your 20s is in yourself, no matter yeah. what that looks like. Finding your passion, trying things, spending money on things that you do love to do in pursuit of finding that passion. Another thing that came to mind is um, just thinking about that thing that you realized made you passionate. I want you to just think about that feeling a little bit kind of when you first discovered that the uh, racing and just how passionate you were about it. What are, what does that feeling feel like? What is it? What told you this is the thing? Like, what did that physically feel like? Cause I think there's, there are so many people that haven't found that yet. Yeah. I think it's useful to be able to hear about what that actually feels like when you find it. Yeah. You know, I, so, I mean, for me, when you talk about racing, it kind of, you know, it's kind of romantic. Oh, well he gets to play with cars. That's cool. Well, um, you know, for me, it was really more the sense of the community. So, um, again, you, I kind of talked about, you know, a lot of my racing was crowdfunded. 
Um, there's a camaraderie in that community that, that I really enjoy. If I wasn't even driving the cars, um, you know, again, I would enjoy being involved with that community. And so it gave me a sense of, hey, these are people like me, you know, um, which is kind of interesting because, you know, again, sometimes to find that place, you're going to have to go do a lot of things alone. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, this year I went to Germany, like I said, and raced there. Well, I did it by myself with a backpack and a helmet, you know? And so I think, you know, when people are looking for something they're really passionate about, you know, again, if somebody wants to go do something, there's always a, well, if I can get my buddy to do this with me, we can get a group together and go have fun. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time because a lot of times getting that organization together or getting people around you. So sometimes you just got to go do it. I can't tell you how many times when, you know, I was younger that, you know, I'm driving through the night just by myself, uh, you know, to go to an event, to meet people. I have no idea who they are. Um, and some of the best connections I've ever made um, was actually going to places I didn't know anybody and meeting, you know, people there. And to this day, you know, again, that that's arguably I have a very, very good following in Atlanta. A lot of my friends are up in there. I've never lived in Atlanta. It's my second home, though, because I did enough events up there. I made some friends, and that's where I met the team that put me kind of, you know, on the map to be able to do a lot of this stuff. Had I never went by myself to go do this event one day, I'd have never met the guy that put me in connection with him, and then, you know, again, just kind of, you know, boils over from there. So, um, yeah, you know, people need to find, you know, either it's a – I found that it's generally just being a part of a community – being a part of something bigger than yourself, um, you're never going to find it on, on your own, I don't think. Um, so find those people that relate to you, that when you're there, you feel at home. Um, but to get there, again, you're going to do a lot of stuff on your own, um, and it's, it's not going to be comfortable. You know, again, I certainly don't like, even to this day, I can go to a lot of places and have a lot of connections there. Um, but, you know, when I go to, to Europe next year to do some more racing, I'm going to go by myself. I don't speak the language. I don't know these people, but you know what? I'm going to have to figure it out. And that's just part of, you know, the, the journey. So have you always been someone that is just willing to put yourself out there? Do you think that kind of came from the sales background? No, absolutely not. No. Um, yeah, again, too, I've always been very introverted when it comes to things like that. Um, to this day, I, you know, again, I've been fortunate enough to be on TV and to do interviews and stuff like that. I have a really hard time even watching myself back on camera because I feel yeah. like I look like an idiot. So um, I really struggle with that. Um, you know, again, super, super, when I was younger, huge self-confidence issues. Um, and that still spills over to this day. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, imposter syndrome and things like that. Yeah, when I see myself out there, it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I, if I should be out there. I don't know if I should be in that $150,000 car racing, you know, on TV. Um, but you kind of just have to get over it and kind of going back to the sales background, you know, I have sold myself on, Hey, you need to get over and just do business. I mean, that's, you know, the hardest person to sell is going to be yourself. Um, and when you can kind of master that, you know, you're gonna be in good shape. So how do you personally combat that imposter syndrome? I feel like everyone has a struggle with that. Yeah. I mean, imposter syndrome, keep in mind, I, I've done, you know, again, I, I have strapped into race cars with some of the best drivers in the world. I have no credentials to be there, and I know that. Um, so it's very, very tough. The only reason I'm there is because a lot of people believed in me. Um, so I have found that just, and this is very recently, I've always struggled with this and, and still do, but when I realize I'm representing somebody else, I'm representing there's a bunch of me's out there that want to do what I'm doing, and I represent them, it helps me kind of get over that because it's not just me at that point. It's like I have this whole community of people backing me, um, and that kind of puts my mind at ease a little bit that, um, if they think I can do it, even if I don't believe in myself, they do. So, you know, again, I got to go out there and perform for them. So, 
I want to talk a little bit about that, about the kind of giving back to the community part of it yeah. that you're talking about there. What is what does it mean to you to be able to kind of give back to your community in that sense, which it, it sounds like has become a big focus? for you. Yeah, I mean, giving back to the racing community. So, you know, again, you know, there's the saying, you know, you're most, uh, you know, in position to help yourself five years ago, which is true. Um, but for me, it's to get into motorsport, uh, to get into this hobby. Um, it's very, very, very tough. Um, again, there's a lot of people that, you know, mostly younger kids that don't really want to go out there and put themselves out there and do it. So it's trying to get the message to them that, hey, if you can just get in the door, if you can just get in the community, we'll take you in and take care of you. Very hard to do, though. Very hard to get that message across. So that's, that's you know, again, going back to the social media thing, I didn't really realize how powerful that was. So people, you know, again, it's it's always a little weird when I get messages from people I don't know, which is, you know, which I, I appreciate now, you know, but it's like, you know, again, they ask me, hey, how can I get into racing? How can I do this? How can I do what you're doing? Um, and so, again, that's that's always a little bizarre. But then, you know, I realize, hey, I can I have this network of people that now follow me. I can show them how to do it um, and then maybe get them kind of on the same path. So, you know, again, I wish I had somebody like myself all those years ago to tap into for knowledge. Um, but all I can do now is kind of, you know, help those guys that are behind me. So I feel like that's a common thing when you've achieved a certain level of success in an industry that you're passionate about is being able to give back. And I think it's because it feels so good to be feeling like you're somehow improving the industry that you're passionate about because yeah. it feels like you are giving to it in a way that can allow it to grow and flourish going forward. What are some things that you tell those people that reach out that are trying to get into it and break the barriers of entry? Yeah, I mean, I tell them, hey, you just got to sign up for events. You got to do it. I mean, you got to go out there. You got to go out there one day by yourself. You know, again, so many people I could talk about, wait, you know, I want to get a group of friends to go do this. Well, that never works out. I mean, unless you're going to the movies or something like that. But to get a group of guys together to go out and travel hours to go, you know, pretend they know how to race cars is very, very tough because, again, people don't like to look foolish. It's just a fact of life. You know, again, I don't like to do it. So, you know, always justifying them that, hey, you got to go out there and take the, sh take the chance. Um, because, again, talking about camaraderie in, in the community, in the motorsport world, particularly the grassroots world, um, that's a very, very welcoming, you know, uh, group of people. So if you can just get there, the rest will take care of itself um, is really the number one thing. Um, yeah, and there's a bunch of technical stuff we could talk about how to do and, and, and like that. But again, most people will miss on opportunities because they actually don't want to hit go and actually do it. So, I think that's such a good point A few in a few different ways. What you were talking about, about just getting out there, even if it means yeah. by yourself. Is that something you realized really early or did someone tell you that? No, not that really. It, it's because, you know, again, I, I was very, very, you know, I can remember my first ever event. You know, again, I remember I was like really, really nervous to go. Um, and, you know, again, you know, you go on YouTube and you see how you're going to go do your first event, how, how the procedure works. And that, that ner the nervousness alone almost made me not do it. I, I can't even imagine what, how life would be different if I didn't do it. Um, but yeah, you know, just getting over the nerves and doing, and, and, and I can relate to that guy. Um, you know, and so I always tell people, I'm kind of always chasing that nervousness, you know, so obviously I've done hundreds of races, done thousands of laps, you know, been all over the country, been all over the world, but actually, you know, again, whenever I do something and I get that same nervous feeling, it's always, I don't want to say it's pretty cool, but when I look back at it, it's pretty cool. So I look back and I'm like, man, that was really ridiculous. I was nervous back then. My first pro race, man, that was really ridiculous. 
Um, but you learn to appreciate that. You know, again, I think everyone should work to that point in their life where they can look back and say, man, I was really nervous, but some really cool stuff followed that. Um, and I think that's what most things in life. So I think there's the great point there is that you should just do the thing anyway, if you're nervous, because you're going to get something good out of it. Yeah. You know, and, and again, not to get all hypey and, you know, motivational, but people always say you gotta be uncomfortable and, and it is true. Um, but again, too, it's just, if you always stayed comfortable, we really wouldn't, you know, move very forward, you know? So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, there are some good things that come with growth. I mean, there are certainly some bad things that you're going to have to overcome, you know, just as, you know, and there's always going to be haters and things like that, but, um, yeah, overcoming that, um, always is going to bring a new set of challenges. So I want to get into talking about the racing industry in particular a little mm -hmm. bit. Here's a kind of a random question that came to mind, but what are some of the biggest misconceptions you think people have looking from the outside into the racing industry that you know are not true being in the industry? Yeah, um, you know, people people think that, you know, again, racing is all like NASCAR, you know. So I, I'm in the sports car world. So sports cars, you know, when you think of Porsches and Lamborghinis and things, that's, that's kind of what we're playing with. Um, I think people don't realize how much actual work goes into um, getting to that level of racing and, and, and just how many people are involved. You know, when you talk about teams, so again, my team is, uh, when I was racing professionally, um, in a couple past couple of years is a really, really small team. Like it's a bunch of volunteers that came to help us. Um, we're doing a one car, um, where a lot of these teams are multi-million dollar teams that, you know, do this profession. They have millions of dollars of sponsorship. So I think the misconception is people don't realize they, they think that we just kind of show up, some cars show up there. But the business aspect of it, how much money has to be on the logistics of it, there is so much that has to happen to put on a race, um, which I'm fortunate I've been able to see some of the back end of that. Um, you know, again, they'd be shocked to see what a production this is. This is a, this, this is very, very big business uh, to make one of these work. So Yeah, I can imagine. I'm also curious about just the typical track of professional racing, like Sounds like it definitely starts with amateur races, just kind of getting in at the bottom level there. But what is the traditional kind of track? Of yeah, so amateur to professional. So here's the here's the thing, and that's kind of why you know again, so many people have appreciated the journey I've done. Most people that are going to go professional racing, it's almost it's almost harder than even the NFL because you got to start your kid nowadays um, at probably five years old in the go kart. From there, he's probably going to go into some type of Formula Lights car in his teens. From there, he's going to move on to maybe you know a lower level sports car series. So most kids these days, you can go any any go kart track in America. There's probably millions of dollars going in the kids karting right now to start them young. So to make it to professional racing and not start very young is very very tough. Now a lot of people maybe you know uh, catch on later in life, where most guys like myself will never break above that amateur level. They might make it to a high level, you know, amateur level where they do some national events, but they'll never make it on TV. So to break that barrier to amateur to actually be into a pro series is a little tough. It either takes an immense amount of money, which is one thing that would do it, or an immense amount of luck and just kind of meeting the right people, which is how I did it. Um, and so, you know, again, a lot of guys, everyone dreams of racing on TV. Um, very, very few people are ever going to do it, you know, and it's because nowadays the way racing is set up, you have to start so young. I mean, these kids nowadays are deadly. You know, by the time they they get their driver's license, they can probably outdrive you know most most very 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 seasoned amateurs. So, does regular just everyday driving in traffic just kill you? You know, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, having driven 
you know, driven some of the fastest cars in the world. And, um, you know, people always ask, well, why don't you drive a sports car? I was like, man, I want to drive something comfortable. I, I know what a race car drives like. I don't want to experience that on the streets. So. That makes sense. I guess maybe it's a little bit just comforting to go from that to the. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, um, you know, again, it's, it's, you learn a lot about, um, you learn to value comfort a lot. Yes. <laughs> what is comfort to you? What do you drive? Like your ideal car just every day oh i mean yeah, well part of because of my actual career is i'm in cars all the time so um no i mean i've owned 50 60 cars probably so um generally just uh suvs you know i'm a big fan of the bmw x5s things like that just comfortable stuff that can get me to and from um i've owned a lot of trucks just because i end up towing a lot of race cars to racetracks so um trucks suvs are kind of my thing i don't i've owned sports cars before but again it just doesn't really do anything for me these days so. just going in kind of the opposite direction going, going the opposite like direction big comfort yeah <laughs> nice um kind of switching gears again i, I want to talk a little bit about just your career right now uh what is 2023 looking like for you yeah. Um, so career wise, um, in, in the retail space, um, you know, again, retail automotive the past two years has been on a huge upswing. Um, we've experienced, you know, with the economy, the shortage of cars um, has really, uh, I mean, it's no secret. It's been very, very good for our business. Um, with the interest rate hike that just went, you know, that's that we're living through right now um, with COVID starting to, you know, I want to say taper off and more inventory coming in. Um, people should really watch the, the automotive market because it's going to be a big uh, play on what happens with our economy. Um, so I foresee, you know, still very optimistic, but I think there's going to be a very, very strong new car year next year. Uh, I think the pre-owned market's going to kind of taper down a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, again, it's um, automotive is the most resilient industry I can think of. We've survived recessions, you know, uh, pandemics, wars. Um, and so we're going to be fine, Just, but there is going to be some turbulence. I mean, people are talking about a recession. I kind of think we're already in one. Um, but, you know, again, in, in our market and in that space, uh, people always need automobiles. We're an essential business, and so it's going to work out, you know, pretty pretty well. Um, on the racing side, uh, 2023, um, big goal of mine, which maybe may work, we'll still work on it. I really want to do the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. It's the most dangerous race in the world uh, in Denver. Um, so I'm working with a manufacturer now on a car and I think that we can maybe put this together. It's invite only. Um, so we have an application in, so we'll see what happens there. Um, and then, yeah, going back to, uh, Germany to do some stuff in the Nürburgring and then, uh, working on a couple races here in the States, just with my uh, stateside team and then, uh, possibly racing in Portugal, but we don't know yet. So nice. The most dangerous race in the world, you said? Yeah, Denver? so uh, uh, in uh, Colorado Springs is uh, Pikes Peak, America's Mountain. And uh, I guess for the past uh, 100 years, there's a hill climb uh, all the way up to the summit. And um, when you're out there, there's very, very few guardrails. So if you go off, it's a little bit sketchy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a dream of mine. That's one of the bucket list races to do. Um, and um, it's taken me many, many years to be able to uh, kind of get enough of, um, I don't want to say, a, enough of a resume to be able to try to get accepted. It's an invite-only race. Um, and also find a car to do it. And we're working with, a can't really reveal too many secrets on it, but re, uh, working with a manufacturer that um, says, yeah, if you can get in, we can get you a car. So Yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of specifications you have to have just to make sure you, it can handle that. Kind yeah, of it's, there's different classes and things like that. Um, but it's really, it's because it, it, it's such a, you know, people from around the world come to race this, um, trying to figure out who the lucky 70 or 80 are is very, very tough. So they look at who you are, what you've raced, um, you know, and things like that. So um, that's, I'm going to rely a lot on, you know, again, 
again, it's kind of the social media presence I have. Uh, you know, I've done some professional racing. Um, and so working on that, I, I think we stand a, a good chance. So Absolutely. I hope you get it. I mean, that sounds awesome. Yeah, we're working on It'd be it. be cool to cross that off. So going back a little bit um, on the business side of uh, retail automotive, mm -hmm. curious, what what do you think is the right way to go about with the current landscape? What do you think is the right way to go about trying to make money in the retail automotive industry? If you're maybe looking to, if, maybe if you're trying to resell cars or like, yeah. Like how do you see people doing well and succeeding and making money in that industry? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, again, in, in the retail space, um, you know, again, there's a saying, you never bet against a car dealer. Um, and it's because dealerships, we know what we're doing. I mean, you know, cars are commodities. You know, people think of just their cars as their transportation. Um, when I look at a car, the you know, I'm thinking of values and where the market's going. So, a um, couple of things on that. You know, again, right now, um, the used car market in 22 was very, very high. Um, it's kind of now in a correction. We're kind of tapering off. So if you have a used car now, if you're trying to get rid of some cars you have, you probably want to sell them like right now. I mean, it's, before, it's, it's, it before it goes back down. It's already starting to go back down, particularly in the luxury market. Um, and again, if you're trying to flip cars next year, um, let's say you're a young guy and you like cars and you like the Tinker cars, anything under you know that $15,000 range right now is still very desirable. So again, if you can find something cleaned up and you want to flip it, that's not a bad thing to do. Um, so there's still money to be made. Um, next year, the, the high line market's going to be very, very dicey. Um, and it's because people that buy $100,000 cars, when they see rates go up, they freak out a little bit, more so than your average you know, car shopper. Um, so you know, again, I'd probably want to stay at a high line next year. Um, and again, if you want to play with cars or uh, and in the retail space, kind of under $15,000 market still going to be very, very strong. So Yeah, kind of switching gears again a little bit here. I just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of career aspirations on both sides going forward. We talked about 2023 a little bit. Yeah. I'd like to talk about what do you see as kind of your goals and things you would like to see out of your career on both sides over the next three to five years? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a, it is, that's a, that's a tough question to answer because, um, you know, at least in, in the, in the automotive space and the dealership space, you know, again, how it works is you don't have your owners, uh, you have your general manager, uh, then you have kind of like your mid-level managers kind of where I'm at now, then you have your salespeople below that. Um, so I don't know, um, you know, again, I, for somebody like me, that's pretty goal driven. I'm, I'm kind of okay right now where I'm at. Um, long-term, I, you know, again, yeah, would I like to go be a general manager of a dealership somewhere one day? Yeah, probably. But I'm at that space right now where, like, the work-life balance is is good, and I'm happy with it. And, you know, the income I make, I'm, I'm you know, again, I'm, you always want to be dissatisfied with that. But, you know, again, it allows me to live a lifestyle. So right now I'm comfortable with it. Um, you know, again, in the long term, yes, would I like to advance a little further? You know, maybe so. Um, you know, people always ask, do you, would you like to be an owner one day? I don't really foresee that in the cards for me. I just don't really have any aspiration to do that um, versus I always want to be involved in this industry, though. So I do know in, in, in one way, shape, or form, whether it's in the retail space or the aftermarket space, I'll, I'll always be involved in, in, in retail automotive just because I'm, I'm very passionate about it. And, um, yeah, you know, so, yeah, right now, happy where I'm at. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll revisit that in a couple of years. So Awesome. And how about the racing? Yeah, the racing thing, that that's a hard thing um, because I just – the, the problem with the racing thing is the things I've already accomplished, I never thought were possible. So it's really, really tough because, you know, again, and it's I, hard and to I, imagine what you could. Well, it's just so hard because 
it always sounds a little, you know, outlandish, but when I tell people, listen, I've actually accomplished a dream. Um, you know, again, I've seen it. I've seen, I can look at back at that. I can see pictures of it. I can watch myself on TV again. Um, it kind of makes you, th- you know, when people tell you to dream bigger, that is a real thing for people that actually do put the work in and they actually touch their dream or accomplish it, you know? Um, and so, you know, long-term the Rolex 24 racing that one day for me, I think's pretty, I think it's, I'm almost there. It's like almost in the cards where it's like almost believable. Um, we talked about Pikes Peak. I think that's, you know, doable, but, um, right now I'm just chasing the experiences. So, you know, again, I, I want to do some more stuff overseas. Um, and I, and I'll do anything right now at this point, just to go out there and kind of stay involved in the community. So it's not, you know, again, people will watch me in one week and I'll be racing a Miata, just having a good time at a club event. And then, you know, maybe out somewhere, you know, overseas the next weekend or the same weekend even. So, um, yeah, you know, 23 is going to be for me, just kind of laying the groundwork to see how close I can get to that next set of goals. So awesome. What do you think happens when you do reach your goals way quicker than expected? Is it time to reassess and set new ones or um, pause yeah, and, you and know, celebrate in it for a while? So that's the problem. Like I can remember the first time um, two years ago when I raced uh, at Daytona. And that was like for me, um, you know, again, I, I, the hair on the back of my neck stands just thinking about, it. you know, I had all the people from home were there. Um, there's pictures of it on the grid. Like, you know, again, I, it was my home track. I'm finally doing this. We did very, very well in the race. I mean, I, I was driving at a level I didn't think was possible for myself. And so, you know, again, for that, I can remember getting out of the car, um, you know, everyone, you know, cheering on and giving you a thumbs up. But it's like at that moment, it's like, oh, man, you know, we're, we're here. Now what? And so I think, you know, again, when, whenever you do something like that, the now what's are very important because you need to say, well, if I could do this, what can I do in the next couple of years? So, you know, again, I always tell people, hey, you know, again, when you get there, Take it in really quickly, but you need to use that to feel what you're going to do next. So, um, you know, again, like we talked about Pikes Peak, I really think that's doable now. Um, so we're going to work on that. Um, but, you know, when you get when you get close to your dream, you know, there are some things that you're going to find that um, are really going to shock you. Um, and particularly people that don't like what you're doing. Um, and that took a lot. That took a really, really long time for me to get my head around, you know, again, where I started to have some success in that. And then, you know, again, you start hearing about people that don't support what you're doing. You get, you know, you're getting drugged through uh, text groups and, you know, and Facebook groups and things like that. Um, and, you know, again, I, I've really learned that, you know, again, it really bothers me when people don't support what you're doing. It's usually people that you really respect. So it's people that you know that you find out, hey, so-and-so is, you know, saying this about you. You really got to block that out really, really quickly. Um, and again, I think that's any amount of success you're going to have. Um, there's always going to be people that are going to be against you. Um, but then it kind of goes back to that network thing. There's for every, you know, one or two people that have really negative things to say about you, even they don't know you, there's probably 20 people that you don't know, and you're never going to know that are really supporting you and you kind of have to do it for them. So sometimes the voices of the haters are unfortunately the loudest. What are some tips for dealing with that though? So, you know, I still struggle with this even today because a lot of, you know, again, if you get any amount of success, a lot of your haters are going to be people that you respect and that you admire. And that is really, really tough. When it's somebody like, you know, on your journey, like, man, if I could be like them, well, then you find out that so-and-so has like the worst things to say about you. Um, I would say use it as fuel. Um, At first, it's really going to take you down. I don't care what anyone says, oh, you know, I block it out, you know, you know. Um, but yeah, you really have to get pissed off about it. And it's like, Hey, you know what? 
that's fine. Let me show you what I can do. And then, you know, again, one day, you know, the hope is maybe one day they'll have a little more respect because you actually did go through with it. Um, but, you know, again, yeah, listen to it. You know, there's no way around. If you avoid it and, and not, you know, not hear it, then, you know, again, you're just lying to yourself and it's always going to bother you deep down. So address it up front. Uh, that doesn't mean go confront the person, but, you know, hear what, you know, hear what the haters have to say. And then you got to turn it back around and say, hey, well, you know, again, I got to show you what I can do. Um, but again, you really got to remember who, you know, again, for every one of you, there's probably 10 more of you that are trying to do the same thing. And so you owe it to those people that you got to put on your, you know, you got to put on a smiley face and, and do the best you can. So I love it. Address it, use it as fuel, yeah. let it take you to where you need to go and then give back. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about is you have a podcast that you started recently. Yeah. So, uh, so me and, um, actually one of my uh, friends, uh, Ben, we started passing under yellow, which is a podcast, uh, dedicated to the amateur track guy who wants to get into racing. Um, it's kind of a gap in our hobby, um, where people do, you know, low level track events They take their car out. Um, they get on the track and they do some stuff and they really enjoy it. But if they want to make the jump into actual racing, there was a, at least in my mind, there's kind of a gap where people don't really make the jump and they get stuck, um, you know, so to speak, you know, just doing their, their low level amateur track events and, and fun events like that. So we're working on that. Um, again, that's kind of my goal to give back to myself. If I was 10 years ago, uh, how do I make that jump? But just make it a little bit easier and have resources out there. Um, and again, too, whenever I'm at a track, that's kind of my new goal. Um, you know, besides doing what I got to do when I'm there is trying to get people to kind of get more into involved in the hobby. So I love that. And, uh, you said you're a few episodes into that. The goal is really just to get more people into the industry. Um, what kind of things are you going to be covering on there? Is it kind of an interview format? Is it really, just um, so it, it is. Yeah. So again, the, the idea is just to give people a quick, um, and again, you don't even have to watch them in order. It's just a toolbox that somebody can go on YouTube and say they're really new to this hobby, they can, you know, watch a couple of episodes. So we're going to introduce them to people, to the teams that will take on a first-timer. Um, uh, ben, who's actually co-hosted with me, he's a young kid who coincidentally I hired um, as a salesman a couple of years ago who's had a, a great career himself, and I got him in the racing, and he just did his first race a couple months ago. So we're basically following his journey as well. So we're going to show, hey, he did race number one. I, I took him to his first-ever event and have kind of coached him along uh, so we're going to use that as kind of a real life example of how this can be done. And, um, yeah, we look forward to it. Um, actually it's a series supported by a Hawk, the brake sponsor that, that kind of helped me out with this. So, um, yeah, we're going to try to do a small run and just always have it on YouTube. It's not meant to be a, you know, every week thing, but we want to publish these. They're there forever. Somebody wants to make the jump, you know, there's some resources for free for them to, to get online and, and, uh, and watch and, you know, feel a little more comfortable about making that jump. That's awesome. I love the goal of that. I think that sounds like a really great and helpful resource. And it's cool that it's shown through the lens of someone that you're taking through the process a little bit. Earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. It makes and, it very accessible in that way. Yep. You know, and it, it's uh, it's unique because I had that, that relationship with my co-host where he was, you know, again, he knows, you know, there's probably a handful of people in the world um, that know racing Gino and know career Gino and he's one of them. So he kind of knows, you know, uh, knows me better than most people. So, um, yeah, you know, we're having a good time with it. And, uh, if we can just get one person to get into an amateur event because they watch and they're more comfortable to me, it's a complete success. So it's awesome. Well, I have a couple repeat questions okay. I like to ask on every interview. I talked about this a little bit off air. 
first question I have for you is if you could go back in time and talk to a young Gino as you were first getting into, I guess like a 18, 19 year old Gino as you were first getting into everything, having the wisdom and the knowledge that you have now, having gone along the way and learned what you've learned and experienced what you've experienced, what are a couple things you would tell them to do differently? Yeah, so it's funny you say that because as we're recording this, um, I turned 30 in about two weeks, and so I'm really struggling with this. I'm like, ah, oh, man, did I do everything I wanted to do? Um, and, you know, again, if I were to write myself a letter back to, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, it, it'd be really simple. It'd be, A, stick with the racing stuff because you're not really, you know, you never know where it's going to take you. Um, but, you know, seriously, it's, it's if I could go back, learn to network quicker. Um, you know, again, I, I hope every teenager right now, 18, 19-year-old kids going out there, um, and is meeting people, whether, you know, we have so many tools, even, even though I'm, I'm still relatively young, you know, LinkedIn and all the social media stuff right now that you have, utilize it the best you can, because that's going to really help a lot of careers, you know, so network, meet people, realize that the people that know you, um, you know, that simple connection could, you know, fuel something like you wouldn't believe in the, in the future. Um, and, and the second thing is go it alone. Um, you know, again, that, that took me a couple years in my mid twenties, I started to do that a lot, but you know, go to events alone um, and don't be afraid to put yourself out there and, and, and uh, you know, meet people. Now, obviously, this is all like the most basic motivational stuff. You always hear this, and the, but actually doing it. But I, I would say utilize, especially if you're, you know, if I was a 19 year old kid, um, find try your hardest to find that what you're passionate about. For me, it was racing and cars. Um, you know, again, a lot of people put a lot of effort and they do all the right things for something they don't care about. And they end up, you know, 30 years old. It's like, well, I spent 10 years doing this. I don't really care about it. You know, whether it's a career, um, a relationship, whatever, you know, again, you could do all the right things, but if it's for something you don't care about, you're going to end up, you know, just spinning your wheels upset, you know, 10 years down the road. So I love it. And it's going to feel you to do things you like you mentioned before that you didn't even know you were capable of. Yeah. I mean, again, that that's uh, yeah. I mean, to know now, if, if I knew what I was capable of when I was 19 years old, you know, again, I, it, 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 you know, and yeah, it kind of saddens me because I know I could accomplish so much more in those in that 10 years. But, you know, I mean, 10 years is a long time, you know. So, you know, again, I, I always laugh. I try to hire, um, you know, in the dealership, you know, younger guys and girls that, hey, please realize if, if you put in, you know, a good 10 years, you could have a very, very good career before you're 30. Um, and, you know, so people, you know, again, we talked about time. Yes, you should get as much as you can out of every hour. But 10 years is a lot of hours. So, you know, again, utilize them the best you can. So love that. And the other question I have for you, the show is called Profession Session, right? All right. I have a thesis with the show that you're, again, a great example of this. I talk to all kinds of different professions. And my thesis is that really many different types of things can become a profession. There are mm -hmm. many unique types of professions. You've cut out a pretty unique path for yourself. What does it mean to you personally to be a professional? Yeah, I mean, to, to be a professional, I, I think it's pretty simple. You should have a high-level understanding of the field you're in. So, you know, again, you can be in a field, um, you know, and not be a professional. Just because you're in it doesn't make you professional. So you should have a high-level understanding of whether it's, you know, if you're in retail, um, if you're a doctor, of your market, of your field. Um, and then on the flip side of that, if you're really a professional, that should be reflected in your compensation. Um, and, and it's plain and simple. You know, again, there are... I don't know very many professionals that aren't paid well to be professional. And if you're not, that means you might not be professional what you're doing, you know? So, um, you know, again, having that, having understanding, and that's not just day-to-day -day operations, that's how everything affects uh, whatever it is you're trying to do. 
I love that. I had never heard the note about it needing to be uh, portrayed in your compensation, but I think that's a great note. I mean, oh, you don't have very many pro football players that aren't yeah, getting paid well, you know? It's very so. true. It's very true. And I mean, sports, racing, football is that kind of goes without saying you're going to be compensated well because it's so competitive. But I think a good note there is that it kind of should be the case in anything if you're a professional. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, you know, again, you could have a kid come mow your grass or you could have a professional landscaper come to your yard and, you know, they're going to be compensated a lot more than the kid. Now, again, you might have a really talented kid who might, you know, end up being, you know, a landscaper one day. But, um, you know, again, I think that, you know, they're, Listen, I mean, I, I, not to really talk to anybody, but there are some jobs out there that are never going to be professions. They are, you know, simply arbitrages of, you know, trading time to get a task done. That's fine. But again, a profession or a professional should, you know, again, have a, a very, very wealthy knowledge of whatever they're trying to do um, and, and be paid accordingly. So I love that. Gino, anything else you would like to share with the audience? No, I think I'm good, man. I appreciate being on. Uh, I look forward to seeing it and uh, look forward to, uh, you know, watching more episodes and learning more about uh, young professionals. So absolutely, man. And if I can still again. say I'm young, I'm still almost 30. Right? Oh, so. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You're young. <laughs> good deal. Still will be when you're 30. I'm, I'm closer to 30 than 20 now, too, so it better be. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> thank you again so much for being on. This has been such a very cool conversation. No worries, man. I appreciate well, it. Thank you again. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to following your career and seeing you hopefully race the most dangerous race in the world. Well, I hope not to disappoint. And survive so, it. That's right. Well, hey, that's, that's half the battle. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, man. Um, and this has been Profession Session. I've been your host, Brody Vinson, and my guest has been Gino Manley. And look forward to his podcast, Passing Under Yellow, and all the major accomplishments coming his way in the racing world and retail automotive. Thanks so much for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. Stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that I put out on different social media channels. We could be found on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, all major podcast platforms. You can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast. And if you happen to know a young standout business owner, professional, or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for profession session, DM me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know. And they could be the next to tell their story here. Until next time, again, this has been Profession Session. Stay focused, stay hustling, and stay networking.